It is a tremendous joy and privilege for Pam and me to be with you here today. Had a great time at Man Camp and enjoyed the fellowship so much. I learned uh, much from the men there as well that I could give testimony to. Uh, there's a sense in which we've come home uh, to the area where Pam and I first met. I, uh, my father, many, many years ago, used to past at Mim, Pastor Mims Baptist Church in Conroe. It was called Mims Memorial Baptist Church. It was a little bitty spot way out in the country, away from everything. I don't think it's like that now. Uh, Conroe has grown, of course. And then I moved to Wharton, Texas, where I kind of grew up there. But I came into Houston, to the University of Houston, where I met my wife. She was born and raised in downtown Houston, but we met there uh, in, um, on the campus there at University of Houston uh, about, uh, oh, I guess now, what, 150 years ago, something like that. And uh, we uh, only had a couple of days for our honeymoon because I was starting uh, summer school, you know, right after the weekend wedding. And so we came, uh, we chose the best spot in the world for our honeymoon, April Sound. And so that's where we came. So we have a lot of good memories here. And we moved from Texas to California and California to North Carolina. So we do have roots here. I'm very grateful to the Lord for giving us the opportunity to come back. So thank you for having me. I love... Uh, Ken and Kelly and their family and have uh, appreciated them so much through the years and everything they could say about us that they might remember this good, we can double that about how we feel in our hearts toward them. I want to talk about a subject this morning that I know is timely for believers. It's always timely. It's the reality that sometimes we find ourselves in very difficult situations in life. We can find ourselves in a situation where it looks like there's no possible way out. Uh, Hope is gone. There just doesn't seem to be a solution in sight uh, anywhere. We have all kinds of ways of describing that as colloquial expressions. I grew up with all the American colloquial expressions. My mother and father used them all the time. But we have those expressions like this. Sometimes we can find ourselves up a creek without a... So you know them too. We can find ourselves in a tight spot or in a fix. We say that we can be between a rock and a... The question is, how does God expect His people to respond in times like these? Times of adversity. In general, we can say the theological answer that's correct is... We need to respond in a way that brings glory to God. That's our purpose for living. We want to make it visible to the world that we love the Lord more than we love anything else. But to see what this looks like more specifically, today we're going to delve into an experience in the life of David, King David, the very one who wrote the psalm we read for the scripture reading this morning. We know of David as being a shepherd, we know of him as being a great sinner. He was a king. Scripture tells us that in spite of all his frailty, he was still considered by God to be a man after God's own heart. We're going to look at experience and an experience in the life of this man, King David, when he was up a creek and it sure did seem that he was there without any kind of paddle. I want to do this because I want us to observe how he responded. And it's not just so we can understand David better. The purpose of it is so that we can learn how we are to respond as well. We can see an example here to follow. 
We find here in God's Word the keys for all people, all of God's people, for all time, the keys to having assurance in the face of adversity, the kind of assurance that helps us persevere no matter what. Turn with me to Psalm 3, Psalm 3. If you're having trouble finding it, it's right after Psalm 2. Psalm 3. I'll read it as we go in a moment, but let me just say that verses 1 and 2 of this psalm explain the nature of the predicament that David was in. This is definitely one of the low points of David's life. He wrote this psalm while he was fleeing from his son Absalom, his son who was trying to kill him. I would say that's a problem. You get more details of all this in 2 Samuel 15, 2 Samuel 16, of David's flight from Jerusalem. But the bottom line of the circumstance is this. While David had been occupied with the affairs of state, his son Absalom was going about stealing the hearts of the people and raising up a rebellion against his father, the king. It was sudden. It was unexpected, so much so that David had no recourse but to flee Jerusalem in the middle of the night, the dead of night, with just a few leaders who were remaining faithful to him. So we find him here in Psalm 3, after he had left the palace in the dead of night, after he had fled down the steep hill away from the capital, he crossed the Kidron Valley after he'd made his way up over the Mount of Olives and then out to the temporary safety of the desert. If you look at 2 Samuel, it says there that he went weeping and barefoot, his head covered in sorrow, his countenance fallen, and so forth. I like these first two verses that set up the psalm for us because it shows us that David was very honest in his evaluation of the circumstances. He's not like we are. You know, when someone asks us, how's it going? What's the answer? Fine. David's not like that. He's very honest. He basically says, it's actually terrible. Verse 1, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. He doesn't say fine. Once again, 2 Samuel 5, verse 12, puts it this way, the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Stop here for a moment. When you are in a tight spot, in a fix, it really doesn't do any good to pretend that nothing's wrong. It doesn't do any good to pretend that the situation is not difficult or that you don't hurt in some way. Positive thinking doesn't actually change circumstances. There are those people who believe that. They are against any idea of negative speech, you know, negative confession, because words are powerful and they bring about things. That's really just a form of of mysticism. David clearly understands the predicament he's in here, and he's honest about it. And verse 2 goes on to explain the, the worst aspect of the whole thing. Here's what's the worst. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Now that's the most unkind cut of all. 
his enemies behind his back going around declaring, God has forsaken David. And he says, my soul, that means he felt it in the very depths of his being, this verbal abuse. Once again, let me just give you a little insight from 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel 16, 7 and 8 uh, gives you an example of the verbal abuse that David was enduring. Along the way of his escape, it tells us in 2 Samuel, David was loudly and openly being cursed by this man named Shimea. He was a, a Benjamite who had remained loyal to the house of Saul, David's predecessor. So get this scene in your mind. David's fleeing along the road. Here's Shimea. I can sort of see him walking along the side of the road, you know, shouting out these things to David. Here's what he's saying, 2 Samuel 16, 7 and 8. Get out. Get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken up in your own evil because you are a man of bloodshed. Get out, you worthless fellow. I think what made that whole so hard for David is the fact that he knew in his own conscience he had given his enemies the ground for all this rejoicing in his defeat. He knew that all this in some way went back to his sin with Bathsheba. That blatant sin against God. He knew that it was this sin that was at the bottom of the insurrection even. So here we have this very sad picture of David fleeing for his life. He's lost the throne. Only his most loyal supporters now are fleeing with him. Actually, all of his most loyal supporters except one. The most loyal one. Uriah the Hittite. Why wasn't he there? Well, that was Bathsheba's husband. And David, in the blindness and stubbornness of his sin, had Uriah killed. So here we have all these enemies flinging his crime with Bathsheba in his face. And David knowing that actually, at the end of the day, he didn't deserve any help from God. But fortunately, he knew some other truths about God as well. He knew the reality and the power of God's forgiveness, as we heard from Psalm 32 this morning. When you understand that God is a gracious God, He's a merciful God, He's a faithful God, then you don't let your failures incapacitate you. They can feel like that, failure, a ball and chain that you just sort of drag around in life. I'm not saying that David didn't have regrets. I am certain that David, if you asked him, if you could turn the clock back, David, and make some different decisions, he would choose that. He would reverse his choices that created this whole predicament. But we can't do that, can we? We can't change the past. We can only change in the present. God has the answer for our past and our failures. He has the answer for our regrets. We confess, and we go on then. 
confident that God is gracious and merciful and faithful, and that when he forgives, he doesn't just keep treating you and throwing it in your face that you are guilty. When he forgives, your sense of joy and fellowship can be restored immediately, even though consequences in the real world can still remain. David knew both sides of that. So David sets forth here in these opening verses his great distress, and from a human standpoint, it it does seem hopeless, actually. So as we go through this, you you make this personal. You, You think about what your adversity is. Maybe something right now that you're going through. Maybe there's some pressure in your life. Maybe some temptation. Maybe some disappointment, some sort of persecution, some injustice, unfairness, a challenge that you're facing at the moment. Maybe it's something that no one even knows about. It could be something related to your job or school, your family, finances, ministry, the future, your health. Maybe you're living in anxiety over the crisis that the world is in and the threat of terrorism and the threat of war and the failure of our government, whatever it might be. I know you're going through some sort of challenge or you have some sort of experience with trials in life because that's the way the Christian life is. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've either just come through a trial or you're in a trial, you're about to be in a trial. So you can make this personal. David was in a terrible predicament, but the psalm doesn't stop there, fortunately for us. And starting with verse 3, then, we get this insight into how he was dealing with all this and what I'm calling this morning the keys to having assurance in the face of adversity. Here's key number one. Trust in the wisdom of God's providence. Trust in the wisdom of God's providence. Trust in the wisdom of God's providence. As the psalmist moves now from this focus on the predicament, the tone changes abruptly. You're going to hear him now speak differently. And this is a choice, by the way. We, we can focus on our problems and just stay in verses 1 and 2. Or we can keep our eyes on God. If we gaze too long at the problems, if we gaze too long at the enemy and the dire straits that we're in, I'll tell you what happens with problems. They don't go away. They get bigger, especially at 2 o'clock in the morning. They are like this monster that is hovering over your bed. The problem has this hypnotic power, but that power is broken when you turn your gaze from that to the Lord. And so David does that here, and he tells us why he was confident in the Lord's wisdom, why he could trust in that. He trusted what God was doing. Providence means the unfolding of God's will, how he does it. He trusted in that, that whatever was happening was part of God's providence that was flowing out of God's perfect and wise plan for his life. He trusted in the wisdom of God's providence. But notice how God's wisdom is expressed here, three ways. First of all, God's wisdom is seen in how he protects. He does protect us, but it's wise how he does it. Verse 3. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. Military language, we understand what a shield is, but this is not an ordinary shield. 
The, the language tells us that it's a shield that completely surrounds a person, not one that you would hold out front and, and try to, to move around to deflect some sort of arrow. This is a shield above, beneath, below, within, without. So the point is, it's not a shield through which nothing ever gets through. Rather, if it's this kind of shield that God has around us, if something gets through, then God's involved in it somehow, or else he wouldn't get through. There's a reason it's happening, and the reason is that in God's perfect wisdom, what is happening is something that God is sovereignly over. We don't tend to define protection that way and health and so forth. But God's wise providence may include a time of severe trial. The opposite of health and wealth and prosperity. So the issue is, do we trust in the wisdom of that providence and that he knows best? David did. So can we. So we see his wisdom in how he protects. Second, we see his wisdom in how he vindicates. How he vindicates us, though we suffer at times. Verse 3 my glory, you are my glory. In other words, amidst all this shame, David was looking by faith upon God as a source of future glory and vindication that God was going to eventually confirm him and establish him in every way. God, David knew that God was going to right every wrong someday. And so if something is unjust, we need to wait. God has a plan. He will right every wrong. He will make everything right. He will confirm and establish you in this world or the next. He chooses the timing of it. There is a present glory in the midst of trials because we are suffering, and we know that Christ himself suffered as well, so we're being made more like Christ because of our suffering. He suffered, we suffered. There's a glory in that, but there's also a glory that's coming in the future when there'll be no more pain and sorrow in heaven. There are some people, by God's providence, are going to suffer in this world all their days here. And what they are holding on to is the fact that they will be established someday. And there's joy in that. They will enter into His glory someday. So his wisdom is seen in in how he does that, how he vindicates. And third, his wisdom is seen in how he encourages us. How he encourages my glory and the one who lifts my head. Remember that picture of David? He he went barefoot, weeping, his head covered in sorrow. But David knew that God was going to help him hold his head up high somehow, someway, someday. He knew that God was going to take this despair and turn it into joy. He was confident in that. So protection, vindication, encouragement, God can be trusted in His providence and wisdom to provide all of these by His grace. And I guarantee you, you don't find those things anywhere else. The world can't help you with those. The world offers no solutions, no peace, no joy. Worldly ways of thinking can help a person cope, but that's it. 
But God provides protection and vindication and encouragement in His wisdom, and we can trust that. And when we do, we are this powerful evangelistic testimony to the world. Problem is, some people just like their misery. There are people who like being victims and martyrs and downcasts. It's a way of getting attention and sympathy. For some, it's a way of getting revenge on someone, but not David. He knows he must trust, and so should we. There is good reason to trust God is perfectly wise in all he does. Sometimes God puts us in situations where this is all we can do, and we learn how to trust in the wisdom of God's providence. Key number two, rest in the knowledge of God's care. Rest in the knowledge of God's care, verse 4. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. David was confident that God heard every prayer. In fact, he says in Psalm 116, verse 1, it's one of the reasons he loves God. Psalm 116, verse 1, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. And when the Bible talks about God hearing, it doesn't mean that sound just bounces off his his eardrums. It, it, It means that God actually hears and he understands. He cares. David experienced that many times in his life. He knew that God was like that. He's that kind of caring God. He loves to sustain his children. One of my favorite verses about that is in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because, why? He cares for you. He hears our prayers. He answers one of four ways. (laughs) Yes, no, not yet, differently than how you asked. He answers every prayer according to his perfect will, So no matter how he answers, we can rest in the fact that it's the decision that's flowing out of his wise, loving heart for us. So David knew he could rest, literally, verse 5, I lay down and slept, for the Lord sustains me. He really was between a rock and a hard place, actually, sleeping out there in the desert. I mean, you'd think in a predicament like this, I mean, how is someone going to be able to sleep? Anxiety keeps us awake. We'd expect that here for David to be on the edge and in turmoil and a state of confusion and discontent, but it wasn't that way. He, he allowed his faith in the Lord to, to help him lie down and sleep in the very midst of his trouble, surrounded by all of his enemies. I could see him sleeping back at the palace on one of those memory foam mattresses I'm sure he had. Surrounded by skilled soldiers are going to protect him. Lots of money, lots of support and love from the people. But when all that's taken away, what about then? What about when friends turn against you or family members, a spouse, children? The boss gives his support to someone else. The company sells out and goes under. Your health is threatened. The car breaks down. What about our confidence then? Again, David was resting in the knowledge of God's care and love for him, and so he slept. And when he awoke, verse 5, he was conscious that the Lord had preserved him another night. That's how the Lord does it. 
You see, we can look around and see small evidences that God is working, that he's taking care of you, and I can tell you one right now. You are still alive. You are here this morning listening to me. He got you here. You woke up another day. You made it one more step, and God seems to manifest his care that way. We don't really get all the answer all at one time, most of the time, or even total relief from some sort of pressure. It can happen, and God is gracious to do that at times, but more than not, we get the information we need on the day we need it. We get the grace we need for today, and we deal with whatever problems we're facing with the grace and knowledge we have today, and then we can go to sleep and get up and face it another day with whatever part of the trial God wants us to face tomorrow. We don't face that part today. We can rest in the knowledge of God's care. You can look further at this confidence in verse 6 here. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves round about me. You can visualize that as well. David getting up in the morning, you know, and his alarm goes off, and he gets up, and he, and he buckles on his gear, his battle gear. He very well may have to defend himself that day. As he's getting ready, he's saying, ten thousand, bring them on. Maybe that confused the other guys with him. Like David. What happened during the night? Did they leave? Are they not there anymore? Did everything change? I can hear David's answer. Oh, no. No, they're still there. In fact, I think they increased in number during the night. And I do know this about them. They are the best marksmen in the nation because I trained them. I oversaw that, and I'm pretty sure they're out to kill us. He's not being naive or anything, really. He's just resting in the knowledge of God's care. Put it in different terms for us. If somebody's joyful, oh, did a check come in the mail? Did you get a good report back from the office, doctor's office this time? Did the boss resign who's been unfair? Did that frustrating neighbor finally move away? We have a hard time thinking of rest and peace unless God orchestrates our circumstances to be what we consider to be good. He fixes our trial. But He doesn't always change circumstances. He is, however, always faithful to change us in the midst of them so that we can rest in God's provision and His perfect, loving care. Important keys, trusting in the wisdom of God's providence, we need to choose to rest in the knowledge of God's care, but there's a third one here. Hope in the promise of God's victory. Hope in the promise of God's victory. We see in verses 7 and 8 that David had a a bit of a glimpse of the end of the story by God's providence. We can at least say this. He had this glimpse of God. He understood who God was. He didn't understand everything about his circumstance, but he, he stood, understood the truths about God, in particular these two facts about God and God's plan of activity in the world. He understood these. Fact number one, God's ultimate victory 
is guaranteed. His ultimate victory is guaranteed. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Notice how strong his confidence is. I mean, first of all, he feels that all that God really needs to do, just metaphorically speaking here, all God really needs to do is just stand up. If he just stands up, the battle's over. The story's done. He's saved. He understands that God is a God of vengeance. It is God's job to get vengeance and to mete out judgment, but he also understood that God is very patient and long-suffering with this world. That sure throws people off sometimes. How can this world keep going on and on and God not bring judgment? I've heard that in the last few days. He's patient. The world goes on day to day only because he is long-suffering. And so David understood something about that. He he knew that God was long-suffering and patient, but he also knew that God was a God of judgment and a God of victory, and he would have the ultimate victory. So look at how he sees his enemies. He compares them to wild beasts as having had their jaws broken, their teeth knocked out by the Lord. So they ultimately couldn't harm him. But the form of the verbs is so important here. Have smitten, have shattered. David is surrounded by his enemies, and yet he's speaking as if this is something already done. And the reason is, it is. It's a done deal from God's perspective. Nothing in history is out of his control. And what an irony here in his writing. All those enemies that were cursing him and mocking him and telling him that God was not going to help him and criticizing him. and They've been doing a lot of speaking So he says, God has smitten them upon their cheekbone. They seemed as if they were going to devour David with their mouths, but he says, God's really broken all their teeth out. So he's saying, you know what? Let the enemies of God gum us all they want. They really can't ultimately hurt us. They can't thwart God's will. Because God's ultimate victory will not be overturned or thwarted by man's sin in any way. And that yields this incredible promise to us that all trials are temporary. They're only part of this world. God's ultimate victory in the end is guaranteed. And we are going to participate in and enjoy that victory and that gives us hope. There's a second fact about God's activity in the world. Not only is His ultimate victory guaranteed, but number two, God's eternal decrees are unalterable. God's eternal decrees are unalterable. We see a reference to this, His eternal plan in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And in the original language, it's the salvation, and the, and the term is a word that, that is used in a practical sense about victory and deliverance in a war, perhaps, or a battle. 
David was in that circumstance, but it is also used in a theological way as well in Scripture. The theological understanding of salvation comes from the same term. The point is, it's all aspects of salvation here are being referred to, temporal and eternal. All aspects of salvation, deliverance, victory, everything belongs to the Lord. It belongs exclusively to and is at the entire disposal of the Lord, Yahweh, the eternal I Am. So this is a broad, sweeping statement. This is a short statement that is encompassing God's eternal plan in history. All of his eternal plan that he formed in his own eternal mind before time ever began. All of his decrees. His plan for history. Nothing gets thwarted. The entire spectrum of redemption drama is in his hands. And that gives us hope. Isaiah 46 expresses it this way, verses 10 and 11. God says this, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. It goes on to say, Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. So David's able to rejoice in confidence Because he knows that God's eternal plan of redemption and salvation, his unalterable decree, includes victory. And the covenant relationship he enjoys with God includes then the assurance that he is eternally taken care of himself in this plan. Because salvation, from first to last, in every detail, belongs to God It's God who has eternally decreed to save His people. It's God who sovereignly calls them to Himself by His grace and quickens them and makes them alive. He does it all. It's God who keeps His people saved by His power and therefore is able to make promises like this in Philippians 1.6, that everything He begins in His people, He will complete it until the day of Christ. Nothing will stop it. So how does that give us hope in the time of trial? It just reminds us that our adversity, even our own ignorance and our failure and our own sin cannot destroy God's eternal plan. When I make it personally, I say it like this, no matter what I'm going through, what kind of adversity I'm facing, I will not stop loving Christ. He'll see to that. I will not lose my salvation. I will persevere in the faith until the end. I will. Because God's eternal decrees are unalterable. Even more specifically, right now, I will not suffer beyond what I am able to endure. Even though it feels that way, even though it can look that way, I will not suffer beyond what I'm able to endure because it's all part of a grander scheme that God has decreed. And if we really think about that and ponder it and embrace it, the knowledge of it then produces this assurance in us and it helps us think long term and take hope in the fact that God wins. 
with all that in place, trusting in the wisdom of God's providence and resting in the knowledge of his care and hoping in the promise of his victory, David closes out this psalm by looking even beyond himself to all of God's people. Your blessing, God, be upon your people. David was up a creek. I'm not denying that. He's not denying that. But this psalm is saying that he was not without a paddle. I like the way 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says it. David was greatly distressed, it says. 1, psalm, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. David was greatly distressed, but he strengthened himself in the Lord. That's where we find strength. This is not a courage found upon, founded upon self-reliance. It's founded upon something outside of us, the Lord himself. Our problem is, in the midst of trials, we tend to forget these things, and we tend to focus on the trial. And here's what we do. We, we know God is there. We believe in God, but, but in a sense, we shrink him. And so there's our problem looming out there, and it's big. And we're visualizing that problem and seeing it through this little perspective about God. Our trials may not change in their size. So what should we do? Enlarge our views of of God. Correct our view of God. See that trial through a large God, a powerful God. And life changes. I'll close with this quote from one of my favorite books, The Thought of God by Morris Roberts. The Thought of God. Morris Roberts writes, The mere thought of God should end all anxiety. When the dark cloud of trouble first looms up on the horizon of our thought, then is the time to apply our theology in downright earnest. For it is not outward circumstances that can drag us down, but our own reaction of despair to them when we fail to perceive the hidden hand of God in all events. It is our folly that we allow ourselves to look at life's problems as if they were somehow isolated from God. What a joy to know that nothing comes to us without His permission and that He will make all things work for our good, that He will supply all of our needs richly in His Son, Christ Jesus. Wonderful promises, but only true for you if you know Him. This is only for those who have come to see their sin the way God sees it and has come to that place of repentance of sin and and turning from from loving self and and worshiping self and, and believing in myself and confidence in myself and coming to the place of saying, I have no hope. I cannot save myself. I cannot fix myself. I cannot change my heart. My only hope is that God would forgive me And take me then and rule my life. And you know what? Every single person that comes to him like that in humble faith and submission and repentance, he never turns away. He saves every single one. And every single one can learn these keys to face adversity. Let's pray.
Our Father, we are so grateful for your word that teaches us about yourself and your ways, that teaches us more about who you are and what you desire and expect from us. We confess our frailty this morning. We struggle with this. We learn the truths, and the first trial that comes along, we find ourselves struggling to apply them. But Lord, we commit ourselves to persevering in it, to persevering and learning what it means to trust and to rest and to hope in you. Thank you for your forgiveness of all of our failures in this regard, that every single doubt, every single failure was placed upon Christ, your Son, and you poured out all your anger over our doubts and our failures and our self-focus on your Son so that we can be forgiven. Thank you for that. But in the knowledge of that, Lord, strengthen us, help us to make these truths real in our lives so that we can be a testimony to the world of how great a God you really are. I pray for anyone here that does not know you through your Son, that you would do that work in their heart that only you can do, that they might come to know the joy of forgiveness of their sin. In our Savior's name, amen.